Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. As you know, this podcast is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of like-minded, independently managed and cultivated podcasts from all over the world. Now, this month, we would like to uh, promote The Unapologetic Capitalist by my good friend Alison Gerlach. It's a forum that cultivates and encourages the building of significant long-term values of any venture. So if you're an entrepreneur, a business exec, a consultant, or anybody who's interested in the world of business, I recommend you give it a listen. And you can do that by logging on to the Agora Podcast Network, iTunes, Stitcher, or a podcatcher of your choice. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem... Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic. I'm your host, Royfield Brown. I am the Labour Party candidate and I'm really proud that I'm representing the Labour Party. I'm a working class girl. I left school at 16. I've raised children. I've set up a business. I've worked in charities for over 20 years, worked with families, young and older people. And I've worked with lots of communities that are really underserved, are quite deprived. Mina Lone is the co-director of SAF and is also a Labour councillor for Hume in Manchester. Lone is a Muslim single mother of four and was somewhat of a Labour Party pin-up in the 2015 election, running for the 98% white seat of Morecambe and Lunsdale. After narrowly losing the election, she described herself as being battered and bruised and said the Labour Party needed to listen to UKIP voters rather than dismissing their concerns, especially about immigration as racist. Hello, Amina. Hello, Rosal. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Now, um, we've known each other for a little bit of time, um, but how were you selected to run for the Morecambe seat last year? Tell us about that process. Um, we have, and it's great to, to be talking. <laughs> Even though I'm slightly nervous, as you can tell. Basically, uh, with, with any vacancy that comes up in the Labour Party in terms of constituency, Anybody can apply for as long as they're resident of the UK um, and have been a member of the party for uh, 12 months. A few people have been asking me and I didn't run for various reasons in 2010 and didn't particularly, wasn't planning to run for the 2015 election. 
but somebody it was after a phone call a phone a conversation a face-to-face conversation with my father that I ended up putting my name in and you just apply so you fill an application form in it's quite similar to most jobs you, you send an application in and then they accept the application they verify you and check that you're you know kosher and you're not uh, some deranged axe murderer um or uh, certainly not on file and um then you get the membership and you go through the process in you know, the internal process and you have to be shortlisted to get on to so you apply you get longlisted you get shortlisted and then whoever's shortlisted they get they're the people that can um then fight for the nomination i was shortlisted along with four of the women it was an all women shortlist um and i ran a campaign was, was that a deliberate thing or was that um accidental as in that I applied? No, no, no. The the all women shortlist. Um, no, the, the all women shortlist was it, it was a deliberate thing by the Labour Party NEC. So it, all seats um, can be. They have a variation of criteria where they, the Labour Party does where all seats can be made all women shortlist, and this was one of them. It wasn't particular. They are contentious with some people. It was a measure that was brought in under Tony Blair to increase uh, representation of females in Parliament and in the Labour Party parliamentary party which is i think it's a good thing i don't think it's a bad thing at all i think it's interesting we did say this um off mic before we started that um you look at parliament now and to be fair to the tories as well you know both on both sets of of benches and the amount of women um is good you know don't get me wrong it's not 50 percent but it's round about 30 you know, so I think uh, both parties can at least pat themselves on the back somewhat, but there's still a little bit of a way to go. And of course, we now have a female prime minister. So um, we are getting some way to equality in terms of political representation, aren't we? I, I certainly think we've made some massive, massive uh, strides and its progress has been made. In, you're right, in both parties, um, you know, Labour started off in the 80s with um, black, and I use the term as inclusively for non-white uh, parliamentarians, which is you know, which is which is brilliant. It's been slow progress, and I think there's huge, uh, you know, st- we've we've got huge kind of steps to make around class, around social economic background, um, and around uh, you know ethnic minorities. However, I do think that progress has been it's really good. Gender is really interesting because I think that one of the things that is missing, particularly. And I would put this on Labour more than I'd put this on Conservatives because I suppose I expect more from Labour because it mm. was and is the party of equalities and should be championing this, is the intersectionality. We don't look at the intersectionality between race, gender and class. And, you know, so if you're someone like me who's working class, poor immigrant background, a single mom, you know, that's not factored in. It's like, oh, she's a woman, so that's great. Oh, she's, or she's not white, so that's great. You know, there's, not just me, there's many people like me. Um, and I think that's a problem. I think that's something that we're missing. There's a gap there. Absolutely. So, however, right, I just want to say, go. I do think that the Conservatives having the second Prime Minister, you know, that is female, is a phenomenal achievement. Whatever you think about their policies and whatever you think about the the, the party, that's phenomenal. You know, we you, you can't, um, nobody can disrespect that. And you know, Labour needs to up its game. No, absolutely. And it's an absolute wake up call for the Labour Party. And I think that the Labour Party does have an issue, a subconscious issue, actually, with um, women 
and of people of colour as actually being the leader. I absolutely do. Um, there is... A- Andrew Eagle could have uh, completely been running um, against Jeremy Corbyn in this election. Uh, you look at what happened in the previous Labour Party uh, election, and I think there is something uh, subconsciously structural about the fact that the, the party of equality in a hundred years plus of existence has never had um, a leader who has been not male, you know, and the Labour Party does need to look at itself there, absolutely. I have just been to Buckingham Palace where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I accepted. But the full title of my party is the Conservative and Unionist Party. And that word unionist is very important to me. It means we believe in the union between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But it means something else that is just as important. It means we believe in a union not just between the nations of the United Kingdom, but between all of our citizens, every one of us, whoever we are, and wherever we're from. Let's go back to 2015, when you were out door knocking. Um, what did you learn about politics? You know, politics is brutal. And I think that anybody that is, that is involved in it, that doesn't tell whoever else that's been interviewed or speeches or new, new you know, people are fresh, that, that if they don't tell you the environment that you're in, um, I think that can set you up to fail. It's brutal. I, that's one thing that I learned, it's brutal. And it wasn't just about last year, but working, you know, being selected in Morecambe and Linsdale was a phenomenal experience. The people, the residents there, you know, I got over 15,000 votes. They, I cannot talk about it in, in anything but in positive terms, in terms of me as a human being, but me as a politician, because they selected me, you know, the Morecambe and Linsdale Labour Party selected me. I was not from the local area. I was not white. I was a single mom. You know, there's all these factors that go against you. Um, you know, in many ways, I was the underdog. But what they saw in me was the was a politician and a Labour politician, and that's what they they selected. And then they backed me by coming out. What it taught me is that don't judge people by what you see. I had sixteen year old. We had the youngest ever Labour campaigner when we were out campaigning. Fifteen uh, fifteen year old young woman who's absolutely gorgeous came out campaigning, and an eighty two year old. So the, the the depth and the breadth of my campaign team was. Um, taught me that actually if you give if you inspire people and you give people the, the space and you give people opportunity to be part of your campaigns part of our campaigns that they will be there and the reason I say this is because you know when you're talking about people who are fresh and young and loads of energy and people who are older and maybe and not as energetic and are limited in what they can do. That means that you have to be quite creative about your campaigns and it means that you have to be quite, it can be frustrating because, you know, look, somebody who's in the 80s isn't necessarily going to be able to campaign for six hours a day, but they have a role to play. So it taught me don't, don't discount people who want, who've got something to give, give them the opportunities and um, treat people the way that you want to be treated. And, and, you know, it might sound really cliched and it might sound really stupid, but you'd be surprised about how many politicians at, at all levels are um, up their own bottoms and think that they're, <laughs> you know, I mean? and think that there's something. And, you know, you should never believe your own hype. And at the end of the day, when you're a candidate, you are put in a leadership position because you're a candidate. Being a, a, a member of parliament 
uh, in the UK is one of the most privileged positions in the world. I don't think we should underestimate how privileged it is. And it's easy for that kind of power, even as a candidate, to be to go to your head and to be seduced by it. And I've seen many a politician, even candidates towards me were, some of the candidates were dismissive because I wasn't from the right background or wasn't connected or although, you know, I'm not from a political family or I'm not, you know, you know, fettered by the right political people or the, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's nonsense, but people buy into it. And so I think that you all should keep your feet on the ground and remember who put you there. The people that put you there are the volunteers that day in, day out, week in, week out, in crappy weather, in cold weather, in rain, in sunshine, in hail, in snow, still come out and will come and campaign for you, even when they don't want to. The long-winded answer, I suppose, is the one thing that I would say about politics is that it's not about I, it's about we, it's a team. You only win because you have a team. How important was your personal story in you running for that seat last year? In my intro, um, as um, the presenter of this show, I'd have been derelict if I didn't trot out the line that you're a Muslim, single mother of four, etc., etc. How much was that used to sell brand Amina last year? Um, you know, you have to... I think it's it's really it's difficult to kind of manage it because I don't believe in personality cults. I don't believe that it should be about a person's personality because that's when you kind of get into a situation maybe more like America where you know it's the individual rather than the party. And I don't agree with that. I think that you know the Labour Party has a great tradition. The Conservatives have you know uh, you, you know great traditions. We are much more party political in our in our democracy. I would say. So I think that you've got to shy away from the personality politics. However, your story is part of who you are. And I'm very proud of my background. I'm very proud of what I achieved. I'm proud of some of the struggles that I've overcome. But it's not all of me. And I think that we used it, and we do use it. it, You you have to consciously make a choice about, you, you can't, people want to know about you. You know, I was asked questions in my selection. I was asked questions about my background, Um, some which were, difficult because I'm quite I'm a private person I don't want to necessarily tell people why you know this happened or that happened but you're asking people to put their faith in you and so you've got to be ready to give something of yourself um that's hard because there's an unseen and invisible line between the public and the private but if you're going for a public position you've got to be able to manage that so the story was there I do cringe at some of the things that I said and some of the things that were used you know you know, yeah, you know, I'm from, I'm a Muslim, I'm a single parent, but there's a lot more to me than that as well. But you, you do get kind of typecast and, you know, and I'm going to hold my hand up. I use those lines and that I wouldn't necessarily use now, but you grow and it's about, you learn and you have, you know, in hindsight and with wisdom, you think, okay, then maybe that worked well. But you've got to own your story because if you don't own your story, somebody else is going to use it. And the, and the media is going to use your story. So the media are going to use those things anyway. So you, we had to be very upfront about it. Um, so we were upfront about it, but ultimately I was a Labour candidate and that's what people were voting for me on. Tell me, Mina, why are you uh, a Labour Party supporter? Let, let's go all the way back to you growing up in Birmingham. What was it about uh, Labour Party politics which resonated with you? I was a late convert to the Labour Party. <laughs> I certainly, you know, I wasn't one of those people that, you know, joined when I was 14 or 15 and, you know, I've been a 
card-carrying Labour person. Uh, my family's Labour. However, I always uh, resisted getting involved in formal politics, as I would call it, because, um, like many people, I just thought that they politicians were people that were self-interested, were a bunch of not very nice people, and um, I didn't want anything to do with them. You know, I wanted to, I've, I've been a community activist for most of my life. I'm 44 now, and I didn't have any truck with kind of formal politics. But I suppose coming from a background where I've seen, you know, growing up in the 80s, I went to school in the 80s, you know, you grew up in the 90s, you saw that, you know, you th- we saw Thatcher, we saw the kind of Blair years. And the reason I, I joined Labour after Blair had left, and I think it's because at the end of the day, it's where you come from. You know, I, I come from a poor working class background. I don't come from a, you know, I didn't go to school university and left school at 16 single mom and and i was a recipient of policies under the Blair government which were positive like tax credits like short starts etc etc so i i benefited from those it shall be a government rooted in strong values the values of justice and progress and community the values that have guided me all my political life for the government ready with the courage to embrace the new ideas necessary to make those values live again for today's world. A government of practical measures in pursuit of noble causes. And when I was growing up in the 80s, we were in conservative governments. We had cuts to our uh, local, uh, you know, public what they called you know services we had teachers on strike you know we didn't go to school sometimes because teachers on strike so you don't consciously make those but you don't you don't consciously think about those things but i think subconsciously it always resonate there so you think you know you know i fight against kind of injustice i'm for people so what's that about that's about collective action it's about not just thinking about the individual it's about thinking about the wider society so the Labour party felt like a natural uh, home in many ways Look, looking at some of the things that you said whilst uh, campaigning and running last year, one of the things which really stood out for me is the fact that you said you hated being on benefits. That that comes out of um, the the Tory party's kind of handbook, doesn't it? Uh, you could have been a, a Tory red, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know that many people bolt at that. I know that, you know, people... Um, they find that line quite, I, I honestly, I will say that I hate, I'll say it now and I'll say it probably till I'm, you know, 89 and still campaigning hopefully for a better society. Uh, I hate, being on benefits is demoralizing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a welfare system, don't get me wrong. And I think that's what some people may have misconstrued from there. And if they do, then they should need to read and, you know, maybe ask questions or dig deeper into it. We should have, I absolutely will fundamentally always support a welfare system, a just safety network. And I want my taxes and my taxes to pay for that. However, being, I do think that we need reform. I do think the welfare system doesn't necessarily work. When I was on benefits, um, uh, you know, we call it social security. It is about having some sense of security, but you're always insecure because you're getting a tiny bit of money. You can't live, you survive on that money. Um, And it, it doesn't, I think in terms of a person's self-worth, you have to have something to motivate yourself with. You have to have a sense of pride. You have to have a sense of um, purpose. I think being on benefits for a long time doesn't give you a sense of purpose. I think it takes it away. And that's what I mean was when I was on benefits, I wanted, I believe that I've got something to give and I wanted the opportunity to, and the space to, to show that. And being on benefits didn't allow me to do that. 
and 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 maybe this is controversial, but I don't think it should. I think being uh, having social security should give us the space to uh, get from A to B when we're in trouble. But I don't think that we should aid people. What you know, I don't, I don't think we should have a lifetime provision for people to remain on social security i really don't so you know maybe that's a bit controversial but i i think that what we should be doing is supporting people to be the best that they can be and to be the best uh and to contribute to society are you going to run for that seat again in 2020 um would you I like don't... to run for it again um I loved it. I loved the people that have got lifelong friends there. The you know, um, it was difficult. It was, it, but I don't know. I don't know. I'll be honest, bro. I don't know. Um, I think that we don't know where the Labour parties are. The Labour party's in trouble. It's politics is very unpredictable at the moment. It's very tumultuous at the moment, and uh, God only knows where we're going to be in twenty. Where I'm going to be in twenty twenty. Never mind the Labour party. All right. <laughs> so. let, let let's move on to, to the Labour party now. Um, is the Labour Party, is the current Labour Party election, sorry, shown a divided party eating itself up out of sheer torment and desperation? Something which you wrote. Yeah, something that I wrote. Yeah, you've done your homework. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the party is very, very broken. It's very fractured. It's in a very difficult place. Why um, is it broken? Because it doesn't know what it wants to be, I think. Um, and this isn't a result of the last year. This is, you know, I wrote this and it's, so it's there in black and white. I think this is about the last 10, 20, maybe 30 years of um, a world that's changing and a party that isn't, hasn't kept up with the world that's changing. And the reason I say that is because the Labour Party, you know, traditionally was working class uh, communities. It fought for, uh, you know, uh, collectivism over individualism it was about uh, fighting social injustice it's about opportunity for all all those things that are you know fantastic brilliant ideal however we are in a situation now where people are less tribal uh, about their politics they're much more transactional about their politics our working class communities particularly white working class communities have been left behind and have felt left out and so you have many of them that have turned to UKIP I don't believe they turned to UKIP because they necessarily believe in UKIP's policies, but they feel left behind because the Labour Party has become increasingly more middle class as a party and increasingly professionalised under the the Blair governments and, and leadership, which is not which which it had to do. I'm not. I'm you know we did phenomenal things under the, those three terms. However, what we did was also left a huge load a whole communities behind, and I think that is now coming to bear. Uh, so who do we who do we who do we stand for? Do we fight for Middle England? Do we fight for working class communities, particularly white working class communities? Um, do we fight for a, a growing black and minority ethnic uh, population in in the UK? These are difficult questions, and there are no easy answers because what it seems is that we can't be everything to everyone. We just can't. Uh, it's impossible. Um, so who who I, I, you know we're going through an identity crisis. Uh, I, as a, somebody who's been in Labour for about 10 years and coming from a working class background, I don't know where the Labour Party's going to end up. 
So God only knows where anybody else does think that. Maybe there's smarter people than me, there's more clever people than me, there's more people who are more experienced. Maybe they think they know. But I don't think repeating what we did in 97 or trying to um, repeat the way that party operated, the party was very command and control at that time, is right for 2016. We're in a different space, we're in a different place, we've had Brexit. So the Labour Party's got to take a long, hard look at itself and decide who it is, what it wants to be, take some time out to reflect, re-energise and come back fighting. And it's not going to do that. It's not doing that at the moment. It's Instead, it's fighting each other. It's kind of on a suicide mission. Um, so that's a broken party, as far as I can see. We can win a general election, and we've been winning elections all this year. We won four parliamentary by-elections, three with a big swing to Labour. We won four mayoral contests. We got ahead of the Tories in the local government elections. We lost the general election in 2015, and it was a desperate, awful, bad, sad day. We lost, I believe, because we were not offering a clear enough alternative to the British people. It's not good enough to go on the doorstep and say, we'll make less cuts than they will, we'll have austerity, but it'll be austerity light. We've got to offer something different. A year ago, we were abstaining on the welfare reform bill, which cut £12 billion from the welfare budget. We should have been opposing that bill, and we have now become a party that has a clear economic alternative of something very different. Are you still a Corbynista? Because last year you also wrote it's an uncomfortable truth for some admitting that Corbyn has brought something that has renewed people's interest in the Labour Party. Do you, do you still believe that? Do you think that makes me a Corbynista? That's interesting. Somebody else said that to me. I think that we have to acknowledge that... Um, I didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn. I think that we have to acknowledge that whatever Jeremy Corbyn has unleashed uh, uh, and or has tapped into or has inspired, I think it'd be remiss of us as a party, as a movement, as uh, as intelligent, you know, people who care about our country and our communities to dismiss that. It'd be it'd be it'd be stupid. It would be utterly stupid to say that all the you know half a million people uh, that are members of the Labour Party now, the largest left you know, party in uh, Europe. It would be stupid, you know, rallies where you have loads of people. However, do I think that that translates into electoral success? No, I don't. Um, I think you have to win in marginals like Morecambe and Loonsdale, like Milton Keynes, like Nuneaton. Those are kind of places we have to win over, and it doesn't seem that we are. But I do think that, I don't think that it's what is either or. It's not about saying, oh, we just dismiss all Corbyn and everything that's happened, um, and this is the way to go, we need to win. Actually, we need to learn from what is happening. We had a court case this week. Five members uh, took the Labour Party to court about a decision, uh, a cut-off date about not being able to vote in this current leadership. The money was raised by crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. Over £80,000 was raised by crowdfunding. That is something not to be sniffed at. I couldn't raise, you know... £30,000 at the moment to, you know, to do my funding proposal. You know, I've got some funding ideas. These are ordinary people that have donated five, ten pounds £10,000. These are not big you know, corporate donors. I think it would be incredibly um, cavalier and incredibly condescending to ignore that kind of... Uh, I, I don't know what the word is, that, whether it's a movement or that, that uh, belief or the sense of goodness or whatever it is, whatever that is, 
it would be silly of us to ignore it because that's powerful. That's ordinary people believing in something. That's people that have been given hope. Um, and whether I agree with them or not about the way that they do things, we shouldn't dismiss it. The challenge of Owen Smith, was it right for the PLP to put him up as somewhat of a stalking horse challenger for Corbyn? You talked about the Labour Party being on a suicide uh, mission. You could argue uh, that out of this uh, kind of kind of fight, somewhat to the death, there might be some kind of renewal. Um, where, where do you stand with uh, what is actually happening in the Labour Party right now? Uh, it's incredibly difficult. I'm incredibly angry. I'm frustrated. Uh, I'm disillusioned. Uh, I feel that it it's an, it was wrong of the uh, challenge to happen. However, I also understand reading people like Lillian Greenwood's account who served in the shadow cabinet, didn't undermine the, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, supported him, didn't brief to the media. Uh, I read people like her's resignation letter and said that she was undermined at all kind of points. She invested time, money, energy into fighting for a brief. It was transport brief, but couldn't, but couldn't after nine months work in an environment where her, her boss is essentially dismissing her, ignoring her, undermining her, etc. So it's easy for me to kind of be angry and, uh, and frustrated because I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a, an MP. I'm not in that um, situation. Looking out, though, from a member's point of view, local councillor's point of view, local actor's point of view, I don't think it was the right time. I think that our chances of winning in 2020 were low. Anyway, Labour's party chances are low anyway. Um, you could argue, should we just keep Jeremy let us lose the election, then go for something else, you know, go for a leader that's competent, that's refreshing, that's new, that can pull the party together, that's united. Um, or should we have had, had a leadership attempt at, you know, in 2017, 2018, after the boundary changes? I don't think having leadership contest, not even a year after the last one, when we have, you know, 200,000 members supporting, that had supported this, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, is helpful. I don't think that having... Uh, a leadership contest the weekend the weekend after the country has had the most shocking result uh, that I would say in the last century of Brexit it, you know is helpful um, when we have a Tory party that was divided that didn't know what was happening that you know we had a, a referendum based because of the Tory party splits they managed to still come out of this looking like they're competent like they're the party of government um, and the Labour Party looks like it couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery, as they say. <laughs> you know, how does that translate to the ordinary, you know, voter? So, where I, I, I'm, it's you, you can hear my frustration. You can hear, you know, I find I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, we, yes, we can, you know, we can, you know, commit kind of Harry Carey and come back and be like a phoenix rising, but at what cost? And that, you know, that's what concerns me. We should, I, I don't think doing it this way was the right way because getting and I'll go back to my point and I know this is going to be unpopular or you know some people are going to be very cross at me for saying this getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn as the leader and I do think that Jeremy needs to go I don't think that he's necessarily the most he's not a competent leader and competence counts 
um, as does somebody who believes in the country that, you know, is patriotically. We need people, you know, this, this is our country. This is where we live. We pay our taxes. It's a wonderful country. We need somebody who believes in us as, as a country. Um, I don't think that just changing the furniture actually is what's needed. We need to have a structural internal change in the party. So we'll move on to the final bit of the night this evening, which is to give us your two-minute closing pitches. Why are you the man for the job? We'll start with Owen Smith. I see that our country is in crisis. It's a crisis that has been long in the making and a crisis that was dramatically compounded by that terrible vote. We've seen wages collapse. The grossest levels of inequality this country has seen in a century. Labour's legacy across Britain is being wiped out. And at the same time, the Labour Party, when we are at our most needed in Britain, is in crisis ourselves. Divided. Divided. And in danger of being... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Defeated. So are you saying that Owen Smith would just be moving around the furniture? Or, you know, re- reorganising the deck chairs on the Titanic? Do I think that we can win... Um, a general election with Owen Smith uh, as our leader? No, I don't. So, in that sense... Why? Tell know, me why. Because he he's gaff-prone. He has some interesting uh, descriptions about women and, and, and his, some of the language that he's used about women is, uh, I find, quite difficult to swallow. Um, I think that um, he... He's, he's young, you know, he's inexperienced politically. I don't mean young as in biologically, you know, he's inexperienced politically. He's not ready. He's just not ready. So, I, you know, I would have difficulties. And there's other people in the party. And, but, the, but, but, what I, but what I was going to say is that the thing about why the, it's not, it is about, it's not just about rearranging the deck chairs. And Owen Smith is, in some ways, you know, he's been put up because there's other people that are far, far more credible than Owen Smith. You know, people, you know, 
we spoke before about people like Chucker, you know, you have people like Lisa Nandy, you have people like Dan Jarvis, you have Alan Johnson, you know, really, you know, you've got people, we have a, we have people there, but they haven't put themselves forward for whatever reason. But just changing the leader doesn't, you know, how are we going to appeal to the working classes that are voting UKIP? How are we going to win back the people in predominantly Labour areas that voted for Brexit? You know, because that, that doesn't chime with the Labour Party that we want it to be, the metropolitan, you know, all, you know, you know, open borders kind of, let's, do, you know, let's invite, let's be you know, the progressive 21st century party that we want to be. What, these people don't feel part of that. You know, we, we haven't got an answer on immigration. We can't win an election unless we've got an answer on immigration. And we haven't had an answer on immigration. The Labour Party has a, has a tangible, credible answer on immigration um, that we can live with for the last 10, 15 years. And these are, the, you know, whether we like it or not, whether you and I like it or not, or whether, you know, us progressives like it or not, that's the reality of the country that we live in. People are concerned about those things. Mm. No, you're, you're spot on. And, and I've said... For some time, I've said before the last election, I even think round about 2010, that when you have a Labour Party, a senior Labour Party politician who can actually say to areas of Britain which are overwhelmingly white and working class, that you actually haven't been forgotten and that some of your fears um, do not necessarily mark you out as being... Uh, racist that whether these fears are legitimate or not you hold these fears uh, and those can be addressed that basically then you'd have some kind of renewal uh, of of the Labour Party and I think that instinctively and reflectively as soon as somebody starts speaking about immigration in negative terms uh, people on the left just go dismiss that person as being some kind of racist and don't get me wrong a lot of a lot of those people are but not all of them and and also what a lot of people do is they conflate uh, uh, emotional fears uh, with immigration and to then attach that to economic woes, of which their economic woes are not necessarily caused because of immigration. But the, the things kind of get conflated. And we need to be able to give people that space to be able to express fears without dismissing them as being being racist but then also be able to have a very clear structural argument to as to what you can do to alleviate people's fears you know and and we've shied kind of away from that and that's where you keep have kind of come in because what they've done is played very easily to those fears and emotions that yes the, you know the panacea for, for these woes are to close borders and all of a sudden we're going to throw lots of money at the nh uh, at the nhs because you're not going to be th- uh, spending that money in europe which was completely utterly a lie and found out to be a lie hours after that kind of brexit vote and you're completely right that the the tory party been able to heal their generational divide on the question of Europe incredibly quickly and considering that they marched us into this uh, referendum and they come out looking steadfast with a, a new shiny leader and the Labour Party is kind of floundering. Absolutely. And the thing, but the thing that I would disagree slightly with you is that actually I think that most people are not racist. No, I no, no, I, most... I, no, I, this, no, we don't, we don't disagree. Don't I, disagree with me. 
<laughs> if you, you got maybe you got the the, the wrong slight emphasis on, on, on in, in actually what I was saying. My mother voted to leave, and yeah. I don't believe fundamentally that my black immigrant mother is is racist. I think she made the wrong decision, but I don't think that she she's she's racist. However, immigration for her was topmost the reasons why she voted yeah. the way that she did. My co-director, Dan Silver from South, he also said, you, you know, you're going to be the champion of the white working class. It's quite funny. We have a laugh about it. And because I've said it again and again, and I will keep on saying it till I'm blue in the face. People who voted UKIP are not racist. People who are concerned about immigration are not racist. There's racism in all the political parties. UKIP probably attracts, the, you know, some of the people that are in UKIP, the representative probably attracts a bit more than, say, maybe the other ones. But, there's, you know, I've experienced racism in the Labour Party, there's racism in the Conservative Party, there's racism in all parties because there's racism in our society. However, many of the people that I've spoken to who voted UKIP are doing it at frustration about the feeling left behind, about a world that's changing, and they have no say in it, they're, they're powerless. About and, and many of them are traditionally white working class, uh, Labour uh, voters. They're concerned about immigration. It's not they're concerned about immigration that they, you know, they hate all those foreigners or, you know, we should all go home. What they're concerned about is the impact that it's having on their local communities, about language, you know, barriers, about cultural barriers, about social barriers. And these are things that we, the liberal middle class, have perpetuated, I would argue, the middle, the, the liberal middle class have perpetuated because they've just turned a blind eye to it, you know. And yet we are witnessing some of that when we talk about young girls in school being withdrawn from PE lessons. We shouldn't be tolerating that. But because they're from a cultural background that's different, we tolerate it because we don't want to be classed as racist. And then, but on the ground, that you can understand the kind of confusion that would cause it. Well, why are they allowed to do that just because they're like, do, do you know what I mean? I was incredibly kind of shocked to discover a couple of years ago that the educational... Uh, board of the Isle of Wight had failed so spectacularly that it had been incorporated into Hampshire. And one of the reasons why uh, the the whole educational board in the Isle of Wight was seen as failing is because of its kind of exam results. And unbeknownst to me, me being from, from Birmingham, living, living in London, I didn't realise that the Isle of Wight has a large population of rural, poor, working class, white working class people. I just presume the Isle of Wight was some affluent bit of, uh, of England. It's absolutely not. And the reason why that was somewhat kind of shocking, number one, that this had happened and gone kind of unreported. Whereas you'd think if this had happened in Tower Hamlets, there'd been a big kind of hoo-ha. The fact that you know they they couldn't the the local council couldn't run its own educational uh, board and it had to be farmed out to Islington or whatever that would have made national press but Isla White didn't and one of the surprising things that I discovered whilst whilst uh, reading this was that you are less likely to go to go into uh, higher education if you are white male and working class in Britain than any other major racial group if you are black and working class you're more likely to go into higher education and I just find that absolutely shocking absolutely shocking I had no idea and, and that does show you that um, there are legitimate fears concerns worries whatever the adjective you want to use within um, that uh, community which 
are not being addressed. And, and I completely agree with you in terms of our liberal kind of bias looking at looking at things saying we need to we need to be concerned about this group that group and another group and actually what we're forgetting and what we are forgetting and the Labour Party is supposed to be the champion for which is fundamentally for working class people and there are there are groups there are societies there are communities throughout England which are being left behind which I think interestingly um the SNP up in Scotland have been able to champion a very inclusive form of progressive uh, identity which doesn't necessarily feel um, exclusive to working class bits of Glasgow or working class bits of Dundee. The SNP have been able to do something which the Labour Party in England hasn't been able to do. Yeah, Scotland, is, there's a lot of lessons that we have to learn from Scotland. But I think that, that again, the SNP are fulfilling a role in Scotland that are similar to what UKIP are fulfilling in England, In this, it, that, they, they, that the vacuum was created because Labour and Conservatives, particularly Labour, have uh, in many ways taken those communities for granted. And uh, they, they, you know, they, they felt that they were just, that vote was just kind of relied upon in many ways. Um, and they didn't need to put as much effort in as in maybe other areas, which was true, which was the strategy, in the, you know, from 97 onwards, which is why we won. But what we, so the SNP fill that void, whether they will prove to, um, to sow the seeds and actually bear the fruit, I don't know. I don't know whether they will, they will be, um, they will close the disparity gap for, particularly for white working class communities. But I want to go back to what you said. You're absolutely right. And the Isle of Wight, that would have, if that had been non-white people, that would have absolutely made the headlines. We, and we wouldn't accept it. You know, we just wouldn't no, accept it. No, absolutely not, no. Many, many times when I speak to people, it's, it is about class. It is about working class communities. And then it's about the intersectionality of, of those communities. And in many ways, the poorest of the working class communities whether they be whatever colour they are, but particularly the indigenous white communities in this country have been left behind by everybody. Nobody cares. You know, they don't they don't go to university, they drop the the, the traditional jobs that they would go into in terms of industry have been decimated. They, there's there's massive seal gap, but we don't we, we, if they don't get five uh, A's to C's, you know, we're not interested. We don't have we don't invest in kind of alternative routes of education, the technology colleges that were fetid we didn't really invest in those. We don't provide kind of huge amounts of apprenticeships. I know the government's doing stuff now, but, you know, th- this is all kind of sticky plus stuff. But in the last 20 or 30 years, probably in 40 years, that there's been a re- gradual decline and the, our workforce has changed. So the, in, the, the industrial outlets are, are not available anymore. You know, the, the mines have been shut, the shipyards have been shut, the steelworks have been shut. You know, where do people go from those communities? You know, because they don't go, they either go into service industries, which are really low paid, insecure work, or um, they don't have work. So, but nobody thinks that's, nobody seems to think that's an issue because, you know what, they're just white working class communities and they're all, you know, they're feral youth, aren't they? And they um, are having babies at 16 and they're just getting council houses. I mean, it's astonishing because the media plays such a part, a huge part to, to, uh, of responsibility in this. 
Um, on the one hand, they demonized, you know, all the foreigners, all these immigrants. But on the other hand, they demonized their own working class, white working class communities. But the white working class communities don't have anybody to champion them in many ways. So they just get nobody talks to them. And when somebody does talk to them, it's usually um, to, uh, to sensationalize them when it came to riots. You know, all these you know, poor working class lads are going out rioting. I'm a councillor in Manchester in Hume Ward. I'm also a director of a social action research foundation, which is a research company which looks at combating poverty and working with communities. We did a report on the riots after a year-long study at the riots in Manchester and Salford, and we spoke to over 350 people, not pupils, people, ranging from people that work for the council, the police, the young people, communities, and people who are rioted. Um, the reports on our website and we came up with some recommendations. I was actually out on the night of the riots. I've got children of rioting age ranging from 13 to 22. Luckily they stayed at home and I went out and basically spoke as a to people that were rioting and as a community witness. As a parent, my kids... They're like any other kids. They want things. They want to go out. They see dissent and they, they want to, you know, they, they get excited. I can't physically stop them. I couldn't physically stop them going out that night. But what stopped them going out that night was our relationship and me saying, actually, you know what? Some of your mates might be going in town, but you get caught up in that. You're going to get hammered. Don't do it. Stay at home and just be safe. Actually, one of the things we did report on the riots, one of the things that we were really shocked about was that the there was a disproportionate amount of young people, young men, that were involved in the riots that um, failed, for want of a better phrase, in their stat exams in, in year five or year six, you know, in junior school. It, it was something that we weren't even looking for, but we, we realised as we were going through the evidence that there was a, a huge, a larger amount than the average were scored low, low percentage on those, on those tests. So we're not just failing them when they leave school, we're failing them when they're in school. Yeah, and, and it, it, I would say, who is the party that should be addressing that? It should be the Labour Party. Well, let, let, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back pre-Blair. Why is it that the Labour Party failed its core constituency from the 1970s onwards? You know, I think... Um, because they weren't in power, it's a simple answer, you know, because they were, you know, you, whether we like it or not, and I understand the kind of... But, but no, I would say that the, the failing of working class Britain, and let's not put colour no. in, in, in it now, started from the 1970s, of which the Labour Party alternated in power, started off with Wilson, then Heath, then Wilson again, then Callaghan, and then we ended up in 79 with Thatcher. And Thatcher was very much a reaction to the fact that Britain was broken, Britain wasn't working again. There was that famous poster with the, the massive long dole line, dole queue. Yeah. So this, this goes back to the 1970s. The 1960s was still uh, a decade of optimism and Wilson and its white heat of technology. But by the time we get to 1979, something has happened. Um, why is it that the Labour Party f couldn't, let's say, even in opposition in the 1980s, um, challenge, it. challenge that, that new economic status quo? It's, it's a really good question because it actually just it mirrors what's happening now, partly because the Labour Party was, was um, 
instead of fighting the Tories, was fighting each other. So you had, you know, what what's described as the hard left now, uh, you know, fighting the Labour Party and wanting to be part of the Labour Party and use that as a vehicle for hard left kind of policies, which you're never going to get, um, you, you're never going to be elected on. So it's 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 it's, it's quite um, ironic and very curious that we're in, you know, 40 years later we're in that same uh, predicament now because we're not being in opposition, you know, and for all intents and purposes, it doesn't look like we're going to win elections, and which is what we were doing in the early 80s. So they're too busy with the infighting. And partly because what we what happened was, and I wasn't being flippant when I said because we weren't in power, but if you're not in power, you can't affect change in the same way. You know, obviously you can't enact, you know, when Labour were in power from 97 to 2010, we were in power and we managed to have you know, invest in schools, invest in public services, invest in communities, have short start, you know, have a minimum wage, equal marriage. All of those things happened because of the Labour government. We d- you don't have a Labour government from 79 to 97. And, you know, the Tories ha- are secure in their uh, mandate. They're secure in that, their, their ability to um, put their stamp on uh, the country, as it were. And they had a female prime minister that was absolutely uh, unequivocal in her desire to have a new Conservative Party. You know, and, and remember that this was a time when the Tory party, Thatcher was elected, similar to Theresa May, Margaret Thatcher was elected from a lower middle class background. She didn't come from the traditional conservative roots either. But what we were doing, what Labour were doing, we were too busy looking at what they stood for. And so we had 18 years of conservative rule because the Labour Party didn't know how to be an effective um, opposition. And this is what make, it makes me so angry that we're what not even 30 years later we're in the same position that we're too busy fighting each other instead of actually being effective opposition and no matter what you say about the Tories no matter what you might think about their policies no matter what you may say about how uh, you know terrible people they are or whatever you you know whatever I hear some stupid things being said they are ruthlessly efficient what they know is that they to be in government is to be able to affect change and that's what they concentrate on you know what what we need? We need a a Labour Party that can talk about globalisation, can talk about the good of globalisation, but then also admit some of the downsides. And one of the downsides, as you so eloquently said a, a couple of answers ago, is the fact that uh, we're not going to build any more ships in, in the UK, we're not going to dig any more coal, we're not going to mine any more steel because those things are going to go to cheaper bits of uh, the world in terms of the labour force. But what you then need to do is to structurally prepare those communities, those bits of the country where those industries uh, used to thrive for that change. And part of that isn't just uh, to uh, blithely then say, but then isn't it great that you have Polish delis uh, springing up on every street corner? But is is to say we need to um, house Britons because we have a housing shortage. We need to up our infrastructure. Housing and infrastructure will provide jobs in and of itself. And then we need to massively invest in schools. And one of the things I would say about the Blair years is that, yes, on, on the face of it, we invested a lot of money in schools but then we did things like uh, academies which has been a massive red herring in terms of 
uh, pandering to uh, middle-class parents in terms of giving them, in inverted commas, choice. What we need is uh, less choice and more excellence uh, in our schools and actually for us to value teachers. So whilst we have this renewal of our urban areas in terms of just building more homes and having better infrastructure that we have better schools for our children so they can be equipped and we need to devalue slightly academic attainment because not everybody uh, can, can go to a university not everybody wants to go to university have more of a German model where apprenticeships are actually valued and and if we do that then at least we are training and equipping uh, those communities actually for uh, the realignment of, of jobs in the, the you know the early to the middle bit of the 21st century because there's no two ways about it globalization means that we have cheaper tvs cheaper radios cheaper cars etc but those things are not going to be made in the uk anytime soon and if we don't have a, a labor party or a labor party politician that can articulately say that so it addresses the fears of those communities in terms of immigration we're going to be floundering for a long time but i mean alone i reckon you're you are that champion you're the champion of the white working classes aren't you <laughs> I, yeah you know what i i am and i, I these are my i say this but these are my people so, <laughs> But that's because, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a working class girl. I'm, I, I live in, white, you know, brought up in white working class communities. I live in a white working class community. I work in those. But these, you know, in many ways, these are my people. And, and it makes me, what, what makes me really sad, um, and I also think it's quite, I think it's immoral, and, and these are strong words, I think it's indecent, and I think it's un-British, is what people like Nigel Farage do is... Um, basically uh, abuse the trust and the faith and the hope of poorer communities and say to them that, you know, and blame other people, you know, this is divide and rule, we'll blame the immigrants, we'll blame the um, the rich, we'll blame the establishment, we'll blame all these people. And if you vote for us, then we'll be able to do all those things. But it's an absolute abuse of trust and abuse of power. And I do think it's un- indecent and un-British because they know that they can't change that. N- Nigel Farage can't close the borders any more than Paddington Bear could close the borders but he propagates an agenda and and a narrative which says that you know we can you know and you 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 falsify hope and what you do is you you use people and i think that is the most uh that that is the thing that's the saddest thing about this and this is and that's the thing that probably makes me the most angry about the labor party that it doesn't challenge that narrative because what you're doing is when you crush people's hope because obviously you can't deliver on those things because it's nonsense. Like you said, we live in a global world. We need immigration, but we need to have an answer on it. But what, what happens is when the Labour Party doesn't be an effective opposition, when you crush people's hope, they give up and they opt out. And that's what we saw with Brexit. People gave up because they had no, because you've got nothing to lose. And that is the saddest indictment for the Labour Party, that we are not actually being there for the people that need us the most. I mean, alone... MP for Morecambe 2020. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Now, I know that you're somewhat active on social media. So if anybody wants to start following you on specifically on Twitter, uh, what's your Twitter handle? I am at Amina underscore Lone, A-A-M-I-N-A underscore L-O-N-E. I am active on Twitter. I will engage with anybody as long as you're not rude. I'm very kind of old-fashioned about manners. Um, so please do at me. However, I will say that I'm taking a break until September. Okay. 
So you uh, know, is this is this family time? Yeah, you know what? I'm uh, uh, as I said, you know, everybody knows I'm a single mom. Um, but uh, you know, I love my kids. Hey, now. not for much longer after this performance on my <laughs> podcast. Yeah, you know, um, but I am spending some downtime with them. They've had to put up with me campaigning for three years virtually uh, endlessly. And uh, it's time to kind of, uh, you know, they keep me rooted and they're my rock. So I'm just spending some time with my rock. Good. Well, as I said, everybody, you heard it here first. This is uh, Amina Lone's first steps onto campaigning for 2020. And uh, when you give your maiden speech in the House of Commons, I want you, I want you to buy me a drink afterwards. Listen, I'm going to take a back seat from formal politics. I, uh, you heard that here first. However, if that happens, wherever, for whichever seat it may be, then I would not only buy you a drink. You're going to have dinner on me, and we'll have a night on the towns in London, which we both love. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, everybody, this is a, a somewhat special and different Mid-Atlantic because we didn't do our Round the Table Pundits this week. We'll probably do that next week. And um, we'll be joined with uh, uh, John over in London and Rob over in Connecticut. Uh, this has been me, Royfield Brown, signing off the Mid-Atlantic. But just before I go, I'd just like to remind you, please go onto iTunes and write us a review. Something I've been forgetting to say, uh, forgetting to say for, for some time now. I am on social media also. I am at Royfield Royfield spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. This has been Mid-Atlantic. Take care. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.